Happy National Pizza Month, y'all. I'm Betsy, and here are the pods we're tossing into the Popping Collars feed for October 2022. It's a deep dish on Popping Collars this month when Liz, Ricardo, Greg, and I explore the layers of our favorite pop culture calendar years. The only thing scarier than Papa John is our latest episode of The Canon, when our panel of special guests draft movies based on the works of Stephen King. Going on 30 is loaded with all the toppings this month when Greg and I go overboard discussing Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Ryan Parker is back as our special guest on The Sacred Six, where he talks about the Masetta, the only thing flatter on the Camino de Santiago than a thin Pizza Hut pizza. Finally, the PC Book Club features the most surprising thing this side of stuffed crust when Greg joins Ricardo to talk about his favorite spooky books of all time. Ooh, it's spooky season. So grab an extra slice of the longest running Episcopal podcast of all time and keep those collars popped. I'm John White. I'm the podcast editor at Episcopal Cafe, and this is Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. The longest running Episcopal podcast in the history of ever, which if you think about it, really isn't an accolade at all. It's just, hold on, just a fact. Oh, it's a true, it is, <laughs> but you're getting in the way of my, like we slay all day or like whatever fun thing I want to say, Greg, with that downer factoid <laughs> nonsense. Oh, not kind. Oh, no. My name is Greg Knight. I'm the voice that you hear on all of these podcasts all the time. So enough about me. (laughs) Let's turn it over to the funny member of Going on 30, Betsy Carmody. What's up, Betsy? How are you doing? Uh, Not much, Greg. This is Betsy Carmody. I'm the head chaplain here at the Episcopal High School. In Alexandria, Virginia, you're going to hear hearing my dog in the background because I live on a dorm, right? And the girls will make noise on the dorm and suddenly the dog needs to somehow alert us. They might be walking around making ramen. I don't know what they're doing, but the dog must alert. But he's fine. But yeah, but I'm good. Thanks, Greg. Nice. Let's turn it over to the soulful, creative genius behind the PC Music Diary, Ricardo Avila. Thank you. So what are you up to? I don't know. I feel like I got to live up to that, though. Uh, <laughs> He's getting real comfortable right now. Okay. Hi there. Hi there. I'm Ricardo Avila. There's soulful people. Uh, I'm the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California. Uh, I am soulful, Dagnabbit. Gosh, what do I have to say? By the time you hear this voice, I will have been back from a three-week pilgrimage and vacation in France. Mm. And I got to tell you, France is really awesome. Mm. Uh, I don't even, I, if I could pay for every one of you to spend three weeks in France, I would. I'll give you my Venmo. Let's go. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like it's spoken by someone with a double income, no kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And of course I might have to run that by William, but uh <laughs> Um, it was just fantastic. There's something about Paris. I know it's cliche, but I just love that city. By the way, here's a little pop culture uh, thing that happened in Paris. 
uh, somebody I know who totally would not have watched this show told me, you've got to eat at Terra Nera. It's near the Pantheon. Great food. It's Italian. Okay. And I trust him. So I go and I eat there. I go and I eat there, but I look it up online first. And it turns out that that show, Emily in Paris, which is on Netflix, uh, they film the, some guy runs the restaurant place. Yes. The, sh- the chef guy on the show. Yes. Yeah. The, the, yes. Game I watched this garbage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was Terra Nera. And um, you, so I, I go there and I eat and I'm sitting outside and there are all these, I don't, is it a young woman kind of show Emily in Paris? There are all these like couples of gals, like looking up and taking a picture and they want to eat there. And so uh, I felt very, you know, au courant and I had my spaghetti carbonara and uh, Emily in Paris. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, Rico in Paris was great. Nice. Do you speak French, Ricardo? Oh, we. Oui. Oh, no, it just said au courant. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wow. I know. Baguette. Wow. You know. All right, finally, let's on. turn it over to the the wise voice behind the PC book club, Liz Easton. Hey, Liz. everybody. Um, Liz Easton, I'm the canon to the ordinary of the Diocese of Nebraska. I did not go to France, but I did go to Seattle for a week, which is where my family lives. And it was beautiful weather there and a wonderful week of vacation. I also ate a lot of carbs, which was terrific. Spent time with my family and my wonderful nephews and my close girlfriends who lived there. So it was a great little restorative trip. And um, I also read one of the best books that I've read in years and years. So on brand of Liz Easton and the Popping Collar Book Club, knowing that Ricardo and I won't record one, I have to recommend uh, Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. One of the best books I've read in years. It's now one of my favorite books. Like it, that never happens. It was like elevated to like, when people ask me, what is your favorite book? That's going to be on the list of just like two or three books. So Highly recommend. That's my news. Whoa. Properties of Thirst. By Marianne Wiggins. Thanks, Liz. Well, we are gathered together to uh, discuss our next topic, which is a topic that we've actually discussed before. We have uh, done a, a popping collars on sort of time travel, where I think we talked about, like, if we could travel to any particular pop culture thing. Um, what would we go to? But it's just such a fun idea that we decided to do it again, except this time expanded out to if you could travel to any year in pop culture history, what would it be? Where would you go? Would you go back to the funky 70s where art was just exploding all over the place to the comedies of the 80s or to the indie films of the 90s uh, or would you just go back to last year and all of the stuff that was streaming during the pandemic? What would you go back and want to check out again with fresh eyes? That's our topic today. The bag will choose who will go first. Oh my goodness. It is well with my soul bag hand going in the bag. Everyone seen. Oh, Ricardo, you were up first. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just have to look something up really quick. <laughs> Damn it. Take your time. 
what TV show, what TV shows were on in 1971? Was All in the Family? Hey, Siri. This podcast brought to you by Siri. Hey, Siri. <laughs> when was All in the Family on TV? The oh, good. Okay. Got it. Got it. Hey, Siri, when was Mary Tyler Moore show on TV? Here's what I found from Wikipedia. Yes. The Mary Tyler Moore show. Okay. Got it. Television. Got it. Hey, Siri, when was MASH on TV? Here's what I found from thoughtco.com. Not till 72. All right. Well, I think you can reasonably do a range of 1971 and 1972. I'm told year is the topic. I'm right. not picking in a single year, so you shouldn't have to either. Okay, Greg, you're leaving all that in. I dang leaving it. all of it in. I love the parts where we can we can pull up the Siri voice. <laughs> <laughs> it this humanizes us. This is not sponsored by iPhone, I swear. <laughs> All right, here we go. Last minute research. Okay, I'm good. I think I'm good. Good Lord. Okay, the years I pick are 1971 and 1972. I'll just put it out there right now, uh, because in pop culture, uh, there were some amazing, astonishing albums that came out. An album that I loved when it first came out, I forget what year, but it was in the 2000s. Uh, the name of the album was 1972 by Josh Rouse. Mm. And um, it's a great uh, it's a great album. And so I thought, well, what was, what was it about 1972? And I got to thinking, and my sense of 71 and 72 in general is, it's like post-1960s, people are starting to navel gaze a little more via... Uh, Vietnam's going on. There's a lot of these new, like Paul Simon goes solo. Uh, the Beatles break up and some of that solo stuff starts coming out like George Harrison. There were some seminal albums that came out in 1971. And I'm just going to name them because I think, frankly, at least three of them belong on the best albums ever. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On came out in 71. Joni Mitchell's Blue came out in 1971, as did Led Zeppelin's fourth album with Stairway to Heaven. And Carol King's Tapestry. Love that album. So those are, I mean, all in one year. Uh, so there was just a lot with music, so much to uh, enjoy. And then the other thing about the year 1971 and into 72 that I think was very important was um, television. Uh, Norman Lear being a big um, producer of these shows. All in the Family was on. The Mary Tyler Moore Show was on. Uh, in 1972, MASH began. Again, seminal shows, and they were, when I think of, you know, there's nostalgia, right? This is about nostalgia for me. I was alive in 1971, and I I, I didn't know well enough, but when I look back on it, it seemed like a magical time. These shows that um, tackled big issues and um, this feeling in the the world of things changing. Uh, The Godfather came out in 1972. That was a big deal. So... 71 is the year I picked because it does feel like a, a time and a place that was magical for me, even though I didn't know why, but had this amazing pop culture um, kind of flowering, at least in music and television, and I'm sure in film, but I haven't researched that that much. Listen, I, I love it. I, I think, you know, the 70s, especially the movies that come out of the 70s, I just think are 
fascinating because it's just just this hodgepodge of creativity. And if you think about it, you know, we haven't hit a stage where we have an expectation that we're going to rewatch movies over and over again um, outside of a movie theater. So there's no there's no idea that there's going to be a cable channel that's going to show these movies again. There's no idea that there's going to be a VCR that you're going to watch these movies on over and over, let alone streaming and stuff. And so the, the the type of movies that you get in the 70s are just kind of all over the place and really sort of boundary pushing in what they're able to do. I mean, listen, I don't think there's I don't think that it's an accident that the greatest piece of American cinema came out of that decade in The Godfather, right? Like I don't like it there was something happening where all of a sudden like whatever whatever trauma happened in the 60s to produce the art of the 70s it, it, like it just all comes spilling out it's brave and honest like that's what i would say about the albums and the tv that you named like right. norman lear's shows are honest about racism and about vietnam and about how families are sort of divided on these issues and stuff like that. And when I think of the seventies, I think of sort of like the extravagance of like um, disco and stuff like that. But really like the albums that you named, I think in my head of the sixties, but it was actually like you just said, Greg, a response to the sixties. It was a, like that generation coming of age in the late sixties and early seventies, like it crosses that decade boundary it and it shows you how much can happen culturally in a decade you know that that might not be the best um marker and mash god mash is such a great show i remember watching it as a kid being um like when it was on on reruns and stuff Mm -hmm. and not really getting it and it felt like an old person's show and then understanding as i got older that it was really a response to the vietnam war in this incredibly dark way and the um the finale of MASH. Like I think about that all the time. It was such a powerful piece of storytelling for a traumatized nation and particularly a generation of young men who had been traumatized. And that was just on television, right? network television. Amazing. I also think about this as a time when people who were not what then the eighties would tell us were hot people were incredibly famous. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Lauren Hutton, you got that gap. Yeah, you're a total model. Like, let's go, like, get this done. Um, you know, would people have have given, you know, an actress like Christopher, actor like Christopher Walken or, you know, Meryl Streep or, you know, you know, Jack Nicholson? Like, is he an attractive man? Is he? Maybe sure. What a weirdo, There's, too. He's like, a weirdo. Just a weird like, there art, were a lot you know, of, just art a lot guy. of people. Yeah. Like, yeah, who would who would not be considered what later the media and all you know has built into hotness and attract like they were just interesting looking people like the David Bowie documentary that's coming out. Yeah, wow. Like I'm trying to imagine like being the person who's going to market David Bowie <laughs> in the different periods of his career. Who's who's by like you're able to be? Oh yeah, well you know he's slightly androgynous. He's also a space alien. What is the what is the audience right that was just kind of awakened to be accepting things that were maybe outside the norm, but we're all in? I don't know. The it's fascinating thing is that all of these things exist together. But yes. like what you've got your finger on of like 
the Freddie Mercury's and the David Bowie's and the Elton John's of the world and stuff like that exist alongside like Burt Reynolds, you know, and like all of this sort of like peak masculinity kind of image that's coming out too. And it's like all of it kind of exists together. Yeah. You guys have all like ennobled my choice. (laughs) (laughs) What we're here for. I stick by it, but I think you all have had such great things to say. As you're talking, it made me realize, you know, the the kind of narrative that we hear as as sort of the narrative arc of our nation is, you know, post-World War II, there was the 50s and there was all that optimism and wealth and, you know, kind of whitewashed stuff. And the 60s were more about rebellion, I think, from all against all that. And maybe the 70s are a little bit of disillusionment with the rebellion and with everything that came before it. And so maybe that's why people, at least in that narrative story, kind of turned more inwards. And I think that's what I'm drawn to, the interesting stuff in music. And like Marvin Gaye was putting out these hits for Motown. And suddenly he, he I mean, he insisted they did not want what's going on to be put out. And he insisted. And lo and behold, it became a smash hit. And it's, you know, by some considered the best album ever made. You're talking about David Bowie. Ziggy Stardust came out in 72. So that even that change from Hunky Dory to Ziggy Stardust is, is a major change. 1971, 72. That's my pick. I love it. Love it. Good job, Ricardo. Oh, thank you. I'm going on mute. You're off the hook now. Clicky, clicky. I'm clicking the things that are in the bag. All right. Oh, my gosh. My croupier here. He's just like, doesn't want to be accused of cheating. I have a B for Betsy. All right. <laughs> the bag is taking names. It is. Okay, listener, here's the deal. <laughs> I thought this podcast was about a piece of media that involves time travel. So I've been having lovely conversations with my sister, with some family members, with with uh with colleagues about time travel pieces of media. Because here's the thing, now that I'm confronted with what the actual topic is, it leads me to this existential crisis, right? So the crisis for me is I don't want to go back because of my intense FOMO, my fear of missing out. I only want to go forward. So it's like, I feel like now I've watched way too many. And I, and I, here's the thing, listener, I am not the contrarian on this podcast. I think we can all, I'm a rule follower. I tend to go with what the topic is, mm-hmm. but for me, it's this, I maybe I've watched too many documentaries. I know too much. Like every time we mentioned, I think I started thinking about a time period. I'm like, Oh, but things were really crappy for women then. And I don't want to do that. Or like, or, or this was the, the, the terrible thing that was going on in the background, the cur- the, the shadow behind the fun. And I can only think of the shadow. And I just didn't know that about myself. That that was where I'm really struggling inside this topic. Did any of you, as you're thinking about Elizabeth, you know, Greg, don't you don't have to reveal it, but did you also think about like when you're trying to pick a time, like the hard parts that were also going on, or was oh, it absolutely. all just glitz and glamour and fun? Yeah. 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 My year has a giant shadow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, maybe some of where I would want to go to witness the sea change happening would be would be in some of the social upheavals and the movements of the 60s. I've always been, that's always been something I've been drawn to. I remember my senior year of high school, like when you finished all, most of the credits you're supposed to take and then you then have teachers that are offering like really cool electives. And so I took a class my senior year 
that was essentially, it was philosophy and human behavior was the name of the class, but it was really about philosophy in the 1960s. And -hmm. that's what it was about. And so I think I've spoken about this class before in here because it's where like we had to pick a book on human behavior that was interesting. And so I read Helter Skelter for the first time and Charles Manson became, you know, that whole, the Manson family became my murder, my true crime origin story, you know, but that chaos of that time, you know, I've done that big 1960s book, the movement away from the conformity and into the chaos is intriguing to me as a sociology person. And it's hard for me to like nail it down to like when in the decade would I go? You know, would I go to 68 when it's just all on fire? I love the podcast, The Dollop, uh, very much. And they're a history podcast. And they actually, in their reassessing of historical moments, have given me actually great comfort that actually it all kind of burns every now and then, right? It all goes up. This is not new. The chaos we feel right now is not new. And it's not, and maybe it isn't as scary because I know it's happened to other people who are in my rearview mirror historically, but maybe I shouldn't be so scared if it's happened to other people and other human beings have figured out a way to come through that and make good out of it. I mean, maybe I'd just go for it and say, I want a 1968. It's just an interesting premise that I actually had more thoughts about than I thought I did. Well, and also like the question of where, like, do you get to pick if you time travel, like if it's a quantum leap scenario, yes. like leap into uh, a particular context within 1968 or 1969. Like that was the year that my parents graduated from high school and they didn't, although like they're able to talk and do talk, they're probably listening right now to um, what it was like to come of age at that time. They weren't at Woodstock. They weren't, you know, they were normal young adults going to school and working jobs and stuff. So I always think about that too. Like I'm not super cool now. If I just leapt into 19. Right. Right. It's not like I'm Forrest Gump and Jenny, you know, and I'm going to be at like all of these seminal moments. Right. Right. Oh, no, I'm at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. You know, like, no, like, I'm not going to be in those. Right. So it's like it's like my parents, too. They lived through this time. They were young and married. You know, they it was. Yeah, you're just leading your life. Right. Anyway, maybe I'm getting to. So 68 always feels dark, right? Because we're talking about the assassination of Martin Luther King. We're talking about the assassination of Robert Kennedy. But there's also like when I think of 68 from a pop culture standpoint, I always think of healing. Like I think of like the Monterey Pop Festival, which Mm -hmm. would have been that summer. Right. Going into the Woodstock Festival the next year. But like Monterey always felt, I don't know, like quaint and fun, you know, for the for the San Francisco crowd. But also like I think about the um, the James Brown concert in Baltimore on April 4, 
when, you know, the city wasn't sure what would happen. And James Brown sort of used that as an opportunity for healing. You know, you're right. It'd be nice to be able to time travel and uh, bring your all your knowledge. Mm -hmm. Although apparently, at least in certain novels that I've read, when you try to change history and go back in time, uh, bad things happen as a result. And I can totally see that happening. You know, if you prevented Robert Kennedy's assassination, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's like that great Stephen King book about the yes. about uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination. That's that came that came up in in my discussions today. Um, that's the best time travel yeah. book I've ever read for sure. We also we also talked about time loop movies, which was what then you know what I was going to pick for this was Groundhog Day, <laughs> because you know it's a Buddhist meditation on attachment and. Yeah, and I I love the kind of approach that that kind of eventually takes in terms of being caught in a time thing. But actually, there was a movie that came up that I realized I have heard about in several different contexts, but have not seen. And that's the movie Looper, which I have never seen. I've heard it's really good. Yeah. So it's on now on my list. Twenty twelve, Ryan Ryan Johnson Looper. There was one movie. That my friend Steve, he said, please mention this this movie. And when you talk about bringing all of your knowledge into into what's going on, right? I love uh, the conversations you have mm, about. I do. I bring it up with people all the time, and I'll be like, "Hey, this is what I'm having to think about." So cool. It is called. It is called. It is 1980. It is called the Final Countdown, and it stars Martin Sheen, Kurt Douglas. Catherine Ross and they are on an aircraft carrier and they suddenly modern aircraft carrier and they suddenly time travel in time back to 1941 near Hawaii. Oh wow. And they know Pearl Harbor is going to happen and what are they going to do about it? And they've got like modern 1980 planes. And like what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. So like that sounds amazing. That's a great concept. I know he said it's a little cheesy. <laughs> so I'm like, oh no. Maybe I'll watch it. I do like some Martin Sheen. I like some Martin oh. Sheen. Yeah, that's a great cast. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. But I mean, because, uh, you know, you Pearl Harbor is kind of what got the U.S. into the war. And in a weird way, you want it to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? right? Yeah. We're getting back to the did Judas have to betray Jesus kind right. of scenario yep. here. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny, Betsy, that even... You know, I was thinking about your original idea of Groundhog Day, like even that, like what I what I'm hearing from you um, is this kind of wrestling with balance between like the the bad stuff and the good stuff, because even like the story of Groundhog Day, which is a fabulous movie that I watch over and over again, you know, just kind of like the movie is set up to kind of be absorbed over and over again, like that led to you know, the breaking of a friendship between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, that movie, right? And they didn't talk to each other until Harold Ramis was on his deathbed. It's this sort of joyful movie that has like this dark kernel at the heart of it, where these friends aren't going to be friends on the other side of it. And it's like, all of this stuff that we talk about, it always exists in balance. You know, it's never one thing or the other. It's always something that contains the complexity of what it means to be human 68 well done betsy eight Love thank it. you 
68. What were the Beatles doing in 68? The White Album. Was, I think that was. Who yeah, cares? That was like white no album, one cares. No one cares. <laughs> Hell to skeleton. Speaking of. Now you're just trying to get my goat. Liz, <laughs> you're up. From the bag. Come on. I have some notes. So mine is oddly specific. Oh, I guess they were all oddly specific, but it, but it's not a particular year. But I would go back to the very end of the 1930s and the very beginning of the 1940s in New York City. And let me tell you why. There's sort of two reasons, but my Fleet Week? Um, Fleet Week? Is that why? <laughs> no? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, so my kind of pop culture obsession in literature began with the Beat Generation, which was like an armchair scholarship experience for me in high school and early college. And as much as I loved reading the writing of members of the beat generation. So let's say Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg. I actually never liked reading William S. Burroughs, but that generation of writers, I was much more interested in reading about them. So have read a lot of really wonderful uh, biographies and histories of that time. Then years later, when I read The Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton for the first time, I realized that Jack Kerouac and Thomas Merton were at Columbia University at basically the same time. So uh, Thomas Merton graduated with his master's degree from Columbia in 1938. Kerouac started his bachelor's degree in 1940. And they both like, you know, wrote for the literary journals and they um, had the same professors, most uh, critically uh, Lionel Trilling and Mark Van Doren, who ended up both of them um, really sort of sponsoring and helping their literary careers in these incredibly different ways. So that was just always fascinating for me. Like, did they ever run into each other as young men and students in New York? And like, what was going on there in terms of the arts and literature and culture at that time? They never did run into each other or that they love certainly as young men. And then even later, I think maybe they wrote to each other because, you know, Thomas Merton especially was a really prolific correspondent. But anyway, so that got me thinking that the, my, one of my very favorite books, it's a nonfiction book that I cannot recommend enough is called the life you save may be your own by Paul Ellie. So it's based on, um, it's the same title as a story by uh, Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. but it is a basically a simultaneous autobi- a simultaneous biography of four Catholic writers and um, like intellectuals in um, the mid 20th century. So Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, who is a huge hero of mine, and then I think Graham Greene, who I've never. Walker Percy? Oh, pardon me, Walker Percy, who um, I've actually never read Walker Percy. And he sort of exists in a different realm for me than um, the other three. 
but it's a totally fascinating book. And part of what it unpacks is just this rich moment, particularly in American Catholicism, which was sort of grounded in the working class because it was such an immigrant religion, a very sacramental piety that was also tied to social justice and this incredibly kind of elite literary world, which religion just does not occupy now. There are no religious or spiritual writers that have any cultural cachet anymore in a critical sense today and even for decades. But I also love the idea of Thomas Merton and Jack Kerouac running around New York City at the same time. They were both Catholics. They both ended up later being really influenced by Buddhism. They were taught by the same teachers. Meanwhile, down the street is Dorothy Day opening the Catholic worker movement. She and Thomas Merton never met either, although they were correspondents. I can just imagine it would be an awesome time to be in New York. I don't think I'd want to live there, but I'd like to open a door and sort of walk into that world. And like, could I hang out in those classrooms at Columbia? Could I hang out at the Catholic worker movement? Catholic worker house, like whatever it was, like what was going on spiritually and artistically and culturally. A lot of it was about the war and response to the war. A lot of it was about immigration. A lot of it was about um, socialism and um, communism and uh, just like really a radicalism that found its place in American religion. It disappeared. Because there's a part of me too, Liz, that's imagining you as particularly a girl growing up in Seattle and imagining the Dorothy Parker of it all and the Algonquin and you know you there with a with a with a cigarette or two and some eyeliner and uh, and, and kind of getting that done as well. Because there is something also like really attractive about that to me as well. That other kind of element that's also going. You know, well, I, again, me too. I like reading about these people. Yeah. Their, their literature is not always something that is the first thing that attracts me right. about them. It's more kind of the the water they were swimming in. Right. The last time I tried to read On the Road, I was just t- too appalled by the misogyny. Like I couldn't get past it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, what would, like, how did I miss this in high school? But part of it was the adventure, you know, of the story and this American, this sort of great American thing. But talk about an oppressive and awful time for women. I mean, there were wonderful, gifted women writers then who were not being celebrated or supported, but they were making Jack Kerouac's dinner. And um, there was very little to do about it, which is part of why Dorothy Day is such a heroic Mm -hmm. person, because she just managed to sort of throw off a lot of gender expectations while still being a mother and, um, you know, faithful Catholic laywoman. I think that is definitely a, some being a, a child of the eighties and the nineties. That was always something I wondered moving into a male dominated career. Does this mean I lose some of that or am I a little more gender fluid in that area of my own life? Mm-hmm. But I do think it's interesting that you bring all that. Cause I do think like between my year and your year, there's some romanticizing of that time For that sure. I participated in as a young person. Right. Of the right. Well, and the hippies and all that stuff. Cause in the nineties, we were going to figure out this environmental stuff. We're going to relaunch Woodstock. 
Well, yes. and part of this art and and the the theology that is alongside it with these Catholic writers is um is living under the specter of atomic war for the first yes. time. It was like an incredibly existential understanding of being annihilated at any moment and knowing what we were capable of as humans. Um I've got a couple things to say. <laughs> say it's been a while since I've made that statement. It has. Uh, first of all, I may have mentioned already, I've been in Paris recently and, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you have, but oh, no? okay. I'll well, have to I, rewind the tape. <laughs> I took a tour, one of these walking tours, you know, Paris walks and it was Hemingway's Paris and it was actually really good. And it was partly because of the guide who was fantastic, but Hemingway was in Paris from like 21 to 28, at least in the times that he was discussing and, um, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, all that business. Um, I mean, I know that's a decade before you're talking about. Uh, the, the seeds were planted, George Orwell, in the 30s. But um, 1939 was just after the Spanish Civil War, where a lot of those kind of literary types went to kind of try their mettle, fight the fascists, etc., get wounded, um, and come back and write about it. I don't know. 39 feels like this cusp year for a number of things, like whatever sort of glamour we attach to the 20s and even the 30s, despite the depression, the Great Depression, seems like 39 becomes this pivot because of Hitler and, um, you know, the start of World War II. So that's one thing I wanted to say. The second thing is I have always had the hots for Jack Kerouac. Yeah, he was hot. God. Let me, I'm going to take you. This is like, I have a picture hanging above like my reading chair. And we're going on tour. That people will be like, is that your grandfather? (laughs) (laughs) Is this your litmus test for guests that come over to your house? Sexiest (laughs) picture ever. I'm going to see if you can see it. It's Jack Kerouac, just like reading in a reading chair. That was at uh, Neil Cassidy's house in California. Lordy. Okay. So that's the other thing. Um, And the third thing is, there were some great movies in 1939. I know that's not what you were talking about, but uh, there's a theater called the Stanford Theater here in Palo Alto nearby. And it shows all movies. Like the rule is it can't be any movie after 1962 or something. Oh, wow. It shows all these old movies. And they had a series just before COVID hit called the movies of 1939. And there were all these movies. Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Nanachka, Stagecoach, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Dark Victory, Wuthering Heights, and um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So all these, all these, wow. just fantastic movies that came out in one year that still kind of resonate uh, for me anyway, and for for many. It was the kind of a golden year in Hollywood as well. Hey, Liz, you know that song, "Hey Jack Kerouac" by Ten Thousand. Of course, I do. Yes. I cannot explain the depth of my obsession with the Beat Generation when I was younger. Well, you have a picture of Jack Kerouac hanging in your house. So Framed, yes. I think we got it. Great. <laughs> All right, Greg, what you got? Hey, the bag has chosen me last. And I actually went to a to a year pretty quickly when I was thinking of like, what year would I want to re-experience from a pop culture perspective again? It was very on brand for what I bring to this podcast, which is 1999. I don't, I don't want no scrub. 
problematic year? Yeah, man. 1999 has a lot going against it. Whoops. Um, but just like Liz, I wrote down some things that I appreciated about 1999. For instance, did you know that the television series The Sopranos debuted in 1999? It's a good show. So did The West Wing. So did Freaks and Geeks. So did SpongeBob SquarePants. So did Strangers with Candy. I like most of those shows. And then we got, you know, like uh, TLC with Unpretty came out that year, right? Smooth by Santana. (laughs) And Rob Thomas. You can't edit out Rob Thomas, Greg. You can't get rid of the Matchbox 20 of it all. Christina came out that year with Genie in the Bottle. That was good stuff. Oh, I like that song. Yeah, I did too. My sophomore year in high school. Uh, and then you had the third book in the Harry Potter series came out that year, Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, Stephen King put out Hearts in Atlantis that year, which would later go on to be a movie with Anthony Hopkins. Chocolat came out that year in book form, not in movie form. But this is where really everything hinges for me is in the movies. Let me read you a list of movies from 1999. The Sixth Sense, The Matrix, Fight Club, Eyes Wide Shut, Being John Malkovich, Boys Don't Cry, Election, The Blair Witch Project, American Pie, 10 Things I Hate About You, Cruel Intentions, Go, American Beauty, Office Space, The Virgin Suicides, Magnolia, and there's more and more and more and more and more movies that I could talk about. And... I think that's where I came at this was what would be a year where if I experienced the pop culture again for the first time seeing all of these things, what would be the year that I would want to go back to? And the movies of 1999 is it. And I actually I lived this like this was one of those where. Like, I'm not thinking of like, I want to go back to who I was at that time or anything like that, because I was actually in the movie theaters like every Friday night, like watching this stuff, you know, like because I was um, graduating from college. I was like in that phase of life where, you know, I had disposable income and nothing to do. So let's go see what The Sixth Sense is about. You know, I've heard I've heard it's neat. You know, and you just show up and you have no idea what it is. And then you just come away with like your jaw on the floor. And there are so many movies that are just shocking, lovely, hilarious, heartbreaking, just all of that, um, all sort of coming out of this time. And none of them are sequels and none of them are IP And none of them are the things that are hit movies nowadays. They're all like various expressions of how are we going to do this from like from a, a handful of kids taking a camera out into the woods of Baltimore and saying, we're going to make a scary movie. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be scary all the way to Paul Thomas Anderson putting together a cast that has like Tom Cruise and Julianne Moore and, you know, like all these, like this amazing cast of characters in a movie where frogs fall out of the sky and you're just, and somehow it all makes sense at the end. It's just like every one of those movies was just a discovery for me, like as far as what it was that 
um, we were being shown. Like even, you know, even if you think about like the stalwarts uh, filmmakers that were around at the time, like um, uh, Spike Lee's movie in 99 was Summer of Sam, which is so un-Spike Lee, right? It's like, it's such a hard turn for him into, into something else, you know, that he wouldn't normally do. Like every, it, it's like, it's like so many uh, filmmakers and artists and stuff were just trying something new and just kind of figuring out what it would look like. And so if I had to experience movies again, that would be the year of movies that I would experience again, because it just feels alive. And I think that that's like, when I think about um, pop culture now, and what it is that I want to feel from things, you know, in life. I just want it to feel passionate. I want it to feel like it has heart behind it. And so often I feel like nowadays the stuff that I'm sold feels inert. It feels like it, it feel it feels like it's sort of manufactured and it has it's it's like a cookie cutter and like here you like this, right? And it's just kind of feeding me Twinkies all the time. And it's like, no, I kind of want. I kind of want to take the Twinkie and make something weird out. Of it. <laughs> right? And so, um, and so, yeah. So if I had to put my finger on a year that I wanted to experience stuff again for the first time, it would be 1999. Well done, Greg. I, I hadn't, I would never have thought of 1999. I got to say um, Magnolia and the sixth sense are both two of just of my very favorite movies. I, and I think the word passion uh, is something that I uh, just and that and those and those sort of twist endings or those twist happenings in each movie that really kind of in a weird way tie it all together. Um, and Magnolia made did an impossible thing. It actually made me like Tom Cruise in a mm-hmm. film, uh, which is very which has never been done before or since really for me. Clearly, uh, you haven't seen Maverick yet. No, I haven't. <laughs> uh, um, be likable and, and Amy Mann. Her music. Amy Mann, yeah, that song. Yeah. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, 1999, you, you were saying there was something bad about 99? Woodstock. Yep. So from a music perspective, so there's a lot of problematic stuff happening in music around that time. So there's Woodstock 99, but there's also the rise of like bro culture. So you've got a lot of, you've got Limp Biscuit, you've got Kid Rock, you've got Eminem to a certain extent and the stuff that he's doing around that time. Like you've got a lot of um, you've got a lot of dudes that are doing a lot of angry music around that time. Fight Club is kind of a satire of it. And then it gets taken on as like an anthem for the same people that it's satirizing. Right. It's like it's a there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in 99. I would say. Did you watch the Woodstock 99 documentary? I watched a Woodstock. I watched the one that was on HBO. HBO. I did not see the one on Netflix. The yeah. one on not, HBO. I haven't been able to bring myself to watch them. It, they are disturbing. Mm-hmm. Like super scary. The The Netflix one goes a little because they had more time, goes a little bit more into some of that cultural background that you were talking about, Greg, um, and also shows how honestly terrifying it would have been to be there as an artist and as a fan yeah 99 was the time that i was also like a young professional i was also working like nights some too so i could go to these matinees all the time like it was i go to the movies by myself 
because I was working late shift at the paper. And I just, I watched so many of those movies. Mm -hmm. I wasn't renting movies. I was going to the theater. I remember watching the Blair Witch Project in New Orleans with a bunch of friends. And there was really just this buzz, like, is this real? Like, is it real? Like, and that being like a part of the watching experience. It's a celebration of a time in cinema too, before cell phones kind of come in and make 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 movies really different and like a night of going out with your friends could be a night of like who am i going to run into i don't know what's going to happen i missed my friend we didn't find one another oh well i guess we're off having an evening and that sort of adventure of life was was present in a lot of those films and i'm going to say it right here never seen magnolia never watched it i can't stand tom cruise so it just it never made the thing but i have seen maverick so I don't really know what to do with myself right now. I feel a little well in Maverick. He's just Maverick. Like he, he Tom Cruise disappears. Right. Yeah. His, his, his jawline does a lot of work. There's a lot yeah, of acting. Seriously. Yeah. A lot of acting right here in this right movie. here with, and just to make that ripple, yeah. that ripple right here at the back of the jaw. I don't, don't knock it till you see it. Yeah. But again, like, you know, of all the things that I listed, like the only thing that's based on, material that came before like cruel intentions which was based on yep. like uh what is it does um dangerous liaisons and 10 things i hate about you which was based on shakespeare but everything else is like original you know just i thought of this story and here it is you know and it's just i think that that's the beautiful part and ricardo you um you were talking about the sixth sense and like the shocking ending but what i always remember from that movie and i can i can see it in my head right now is Tony Collette talking to her son in the car and he's saying, you know, and he's talking about how he sees her mom and she's like, do you see her right now? And he's like, yeah, she's, she's right. And then, you know, and Tony Collette just starts crying, you know, she does like that thing and she's, yeah. you know, she's doing that Philly accent and it's just, it's just this gorgeous moment between a parent and a child and it just it, like it makes my the hair on the back of my arms stand up. It's just and it's just such a quiet, soft moment. And there's so many of these in all of these like big blockbuster movies. Like the six. I mean, the fact that Six Sense and The Matrix came out in the same year, um, like that's crazy, right? Because both of those become because everybody's going to the movie theater. Everyone's watching the movie. They become these tropes that are then kind of everywhere. When we talked about Terminator 2, and I mentioned I talked about with my sister, and Emily's like, I just remember from T2, it was a lot of things like melting into kind of a silvery liquid. Like that was MTV Movie Awards or like whatever's happening, right? That's the hit big film. And everything was The Matrix. And everything Mm. was Sixth Sense. Like it was just everywhere. And But it was because we were having this common shared pop culture experience you know a grand majority of the population experiencing that as opposed to how bifurcated and tiktok filtered everything kind of feels now yeah someone ruined the sixth sense for me oh, they pulled no. me the thing and um so i never really got to watch it for the first time you know what, what was I mean? that person's name who did that to you liz <sighs> to be honest i don't remember no oh, yeah probably a boy be. So probably, a boy. probably a boy boy yeah, who is listening to kid rock he, he's busy listening to limp biscuit and is going to come <laughs> ruin 
The six cents for you. Yeah, the backwards. He did it all for the nookie. He did it all for the nookie, Liz. <laughs> oh my God. That's terrible. Yeah, six times. Thank God no one ruined it for me. I, when I saw the end of that, I was, it was a moving film. You know, it's, a, it's like a horror movie, but it's profound. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. really. And it stands up. Like, it's still a great movie. You know, Misha Barton, never been better. Never been better than that movie. <laughs> I can't remember her. OC, sorry. Nope. <laughs> Creepy girl under the bed. She's great. I, oh, I stand by that Katie Holmes is like, it, Go is maybe Katie Holmes' first movie. I yeah. Um, okay. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, the first, guys. The first novel of the Beat Generation was called Go. Oh, wow. It was written by John Clellan Holmes. It all comes back around. How about that? Well, thank you for going in the Wayback Machine with our crew here at Popping Collars. Um, what are your favorite pop culture years? Email us at poppingcollarspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, whatever podcatcher you use. And if you want to, you can subscribe and rate and review. Or don't, you know, I'm not your parent. I'm not telling you what to do. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, we're still going to make the show whether or not you do it. So it's okay. Wow. Um, advertising tips for boy, me. I mean, just real warm and fuzzy, Greg. Just really welcome in the listener. Just, golly. Jeez. I just don't want to give people work. Like, I'm, I'm not about that, you know, giving people work life. Uh, and then, of course, you can find us on Episcopal Journal dot org uh each and every time we love a physical journal that is hard to say a dot org <laughs> we love a physical journal dot org we know you will as well check them out for all your episcopal news needs and beyond we're the official episcopal podcast of journal convention 2022 uh we had two members of our podcast that were there so i think that makes us <laughs> oh my God, call that the unofficial yeah, I don't, I don't we're the we're the officially unofficial podcast of General Convention 2022. So nice. Read about it at episcopaljournal.org. <laughs> uh, and that is Pavin Collars for this time. Uh, thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Betsy. Uh, we will see you next time. And keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. Nice. Uh-huh. Um, guys, I got an email from a fan, from a Pavin Collars fan. Stalker. Wait, was it the same one that emailed Ricardo? Because he got an email as well. You got one too? Yeah. What did your say? It was from a woman named Molly, I think. Wow. Oh. oh, this is a woman who's been listening to our podcast for five years. She loves us. And on a recent book club episode, Ricardo said that I should be a spiritual director. And I said, I said, I'm too old. And she had just finished a spiritual direction program. And she was like, for what it's worth. Or I said, I'm too young. I didn't say I'm too old. She said, for what it's worth, like there's a whole generation of people who are looking for directors who are actually seeking younger directors. So if that's something you're interested in, don't discount it because of your age. Well, what was yours, Ricardo? Uh, it was a guy. I don't even know who it is, but he uh, he was touched when I talked um, in the in, remember that Blaze Foley song about like starting over again yes. and trying to get it, make a new start and all that. And I talked about how I had decades of not knowing what to do with my life and that becoming a priest that I'm really good at it. And it kind mm-hmm. of saved me. And he's kind of had similar stuff in his life. He says, oh. you know, it Is was, he, a priest too? he said that 
as someone who's needed second, third, and fourth chances, uh, it really moved him to hear that. And he wanted me to let him, he wanted me to know that it helped him. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That's, you guys, we've got a really great podcast. Bumble. Um, how are our numbers, right? I mean, you know, we're doing it's like, no, I am. Um, I am always curious. We've started getting more and more metrics from around the world and uh, like breakdowns of like where people are listening in Germany and Sweden and stuff like that. And I'm always curious, like, who's this guy like in the hinterlands of Switzerland, Sweden, that's like listening to our podcast? Like, I don't. I don't know who that is, you know. Like, I'm like, is it a hacker? Like, what's happening? <laughs> Maybe they're lonely people who like enjoy our conversation. Maybe people just like our podcast. It's a really good podcast. I mean, given Greg's advertising, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're flocking. So-